Sculptor John Powers was born in Chicago. After doing an apprenticeship on the West Coast with the sculptor Tom Jay, he moved to New York where he studied at Pratt and Hunter College. His artwork has been shown at MoMA PS1, the Brooklyn Museum, the Bruges Triennial, and Postmasters Gallery, among others. He was recently featured in the New York Times after injuring his hand. John Powers, welcome to the creative process. Thank you. It's nice to talk to you, Mia. The figure in my work is me. The figure in my work is you. It's me placing objects. It's me, you know, putting things together. It's you standing near it. It's you in proximity, moving back and forth, moving around it. It's or us. One of the reasons I make the things I do, the way I make them, is because I can't imagine them. I make things that I couldn't draw or even think about clearly. I can only look at them. I enjoy the complexity that I make because I'm striving to see it. And I think a lot about how other people look at it. I picture people moving around it in different light conditions and different settings as I work. What for you is the importance of art and creativity and why is sculpture your chosen language? I started out, I think like a lot of young people, I, I was really interested in animation and comic books, things like that. And at some point in high school, I started working in 3D. I had a facility for it that, you know, I, I really worked very hard to become a draftsman, but I didn't work very hard to become a sculptor. That came to me easily. After high school, I was able to find a sculptor on the West Coast who I apprenticed with and worked with for six years, three years sort of intense, and then three more years on my own as a master craftsman doing bronze casting. And that was interesting. It was, it was figurative art, sort of an extension of the comic books and so on that I was interested in high school. But I, I reached a place with it, uh, a break, because bronze casting, a lot of what you do, a lot of how you make money is religious work, uh, war memorial work, things that I, I, I didn't feel a connection to. My audience was older. The people I was working with were older. I was in my 20s. I felt simpatico with the people I worked with, politically, ideologically, but the people I was working for, I felt more and more distant from. So I decided to go back to school and I moved to New York. I never thought about not doing sculpture when I came here. There's lots of other things I'm interested in. I loved studying color theory, very interested in design and architecture, but really I felt most at home, most capable of sort of shaping a discussion within sculpture. And I discovered things like minimalism and installation art, and, you know, Matthew Barney and Dan Flavin and things that really lit me up. And so I stuck with it and here I am. There's this dialogue that takes place, what you're talking about with who were the end recipients of your art. And if you don't feel that there's a dialogue, it, maybe it becomes less satisfying for you or the meaning that you put into it, they put in another meaning. When it's so far apart from your joy of making. There's interesting questions there about abstraction, making art that has a quite distinct meaning. So are you more drawn to something that is more loosely interpretive? Maybe partly joking, but I like to describe myself as making art about abstraction. That we have gone through, you know, history with modernism where abstraction 
was believed to have very clear meanings, universality, you know, some sort of like primary language or, or some sort of touch to some sort of primary form, neutrality, you know, absolute neutrality, or, you know, even like, you know, some sort of touch on the, the core, the, what the, the prelingual, you know, ness of a person's, you know, an empathetic. Um, all of these ideologies failed, you know, one after another. And, but they all produced really interesting, beautiful work that I love, that I'm interested in, that I look at a lot, that I look back to, and I enjoy thinking about. So for my own work, it, it's less about ambiguity and more about just thinking about this history that's peculiar to our times. Abstract art is, is an invention of, of, of the modern era. You know, you, you can point to cinema as extensions of picture making, as extensions of architecture, as extensions of music making. You know, it, it's sort of a, a master art that's swept in all the other arts, but it is in fact still in many ways uh, traditional art. Abstraction really isn't. Abstraction really calls on us to sort of think differently, to think in a contemporary way. I'm interested in people who can think in the three dimensions. And I think that it's been observed by many people that now we're, we're living in a very visual age. And yet in many ways, it's a flattened age with all of us glued to our screens or particularly in these uh, last few pandemic years, the social isolation. So it seems to me the service of public art and sculpture and bringing people together around an object that, that's tangible, like we want to touch again and we're beginning to. So what have your reflections been about that? I think that's, that's an interesting take. I feel like the lesson of the last six years is I, I can't predict anything. I don't understand. I've lost the thread. If you had told me what was going to happen next year, six years ago, I would have laughed in your face. If you had told me what was going to happen last year, two years ago, I would have laughed in your face. I, in myself, for myself, you know, I hunger to re-engage. I really love the time I get to spend in museums now. It's like, it's like even more special than it's ever been. So you've spoken about how you think with your hands. And so now you're reflecting, thinking more about how, how much you think with your hands and what you're able to do with that. And I'm just wondering, how is your art changing now? Do you feel it will return to a figuration or have elements of figuration that you may have left behind in the past? For your listeners who don't know me, we should at least address the elephant in the room, which is this past spring, May, I was, had an accident with a table saw and I cut off the entirety of my thumb and ring finger and badly damaged my index and, and middle fingers. I'm wearing a prosthetic now for the first time. It's not wired to my body in any way. It doesn't respond to my mind. It is body driven. So it does respond to my mind in that way mechanically. So when I curl my hand, the digits curl inwards. I'm very new to this. This is a week old, I think I have. So I've only just begun working with it. This is my helper hand. My dominant hand is my right. So I'm very fortunate that you know I didn't lose my right thumb. Your helper hand is exactly like a helper in a studio. And I don't know if you work with assistants when you paint and so on. But my experience with assistants is that two people can do three times as much as one person. That one person 
can do anything two people can do. It just takes three times as long and the effort. So, you know, to move a, a generator into the back of a truck with two guys, boom, it's in, you're done. To do it by myself, I have to find some wood, build a ramp, roll it up, be careful, you know, set it up so it doesn't fall off, et cetera. It's a lot more effort on my part. It's a lot more time. That's exactly what it's like to lose your, your helper hand. I find that I'm able to do everything I was doing before, or at least that I've tried to do. Um, I'm not doing some things like I'm not working on a saw yet, simply because I don't feel like I have the control that I wanted to get the prosthesis and really master it. So I'll start working on saws again this spring. I gave myself the time off. So I'm doing other things. I'm teaching myself how to do. So right now I'm doing collage in my studio. But again, this is this is less than a week old. So this is all this is all very new to me. Big question a lot of people have asked me is how my art will change. For myself, I would like to get back to what I was doing. I'd like to be to feel that same competence, to feel the ability to do everything I did before. I doubt I would do something literal like start doing figurative work about hands, for instance. I think probably it's, it will be more conceptual. It will be more procedural. It's interesting how you say that you almost couldn't think of them. So it's like the action precedes the thought or is alongside it. Because I think a long times people are very unaware of the extent to which we embody our thoughts. Like it's, I think, therefore I am. I think it originates here up in the head and then it acts out into the world. But like dancers, everyone who uses their body like knows that it's almost more sophisticated and faster. And I bet a lot of us feel like we're all up here. That might be the big problem that humans have, that we're all <laughs> up here and it doesn't get down here. Yeah, Descartes there. That's actually something I've thought about a great deal. I think therefore I am versus I feel therefore I am. There's a neuroscientist named Antonio Damasio who wrote a book called, I think, or, uh, Descartes' Error, and another one called The Feeling of What Happens. And he's been out of my mind a lot because he writes about phantom limbs, and I experienced a phantom limb. And he talks about the fact that if, say, you have a sibling and something happened to them, they had a stroke or a fever or an accident of some sort that destroyed their ability to make and understand language. That the two of you could sit down, you couldn't speak, but you could smile and you could touch. You could still love one another. You could, they would still be your sibling. They would still be the person that you remembered. You would still, they would still be able to connect with you and love you and, and in all important ways be human. But that if you destroy that same sibling's ability to, to control their emotions, that you would then be talking with an intelligent person with all the memories of your sibling, but in fact, an entirely alien person who you wouldn't be able to relate to any longer, and they would be able to relate to you. That you would destroy them as a human being. I read Damasio's book, I don't know, it came out 15, maybe 20 years ago, I can't remember. I felt it was very important. It jived really well with things that I was reading about phenomenology and others, it sort of extended into the present moment and what we know about the mind, you know, right now, things that I was being taught that were, you know, artists were reading in the 60s. 
to my, like the way I encounter objects is very emotional, is very in the body. So, you know, when I talk about thinking with my hands and not being allegorical or metaphorical, I, I really think that we think with our hands that this is the part of our bodies that we look at most. So when I'm talking to you and I'm speaking with my hands, I'm not just using them for emphasis. I'm not just using them to, you know, to add color to my words, that I'm also looking at them. I'm looking at you, I'm looking at them, I'm looking through them at you. I'm shaping my words, I'm shaping my ideas by looking at myself. You know, there's a, there's a feedback loop um, that's crucial. You know, to say like it all happens in the mind, like ah, so deeply in the body, so much happens in the body. And having a phantom limb is amazing to have like, you know, the mind invent a limb is very strange. It's one of the more interesting things about it is that it's very visual. The way you treat phantom limb pain is with mirrors. You get the mind to look and you can hack the mind quite easily with vision. It's given me a, a much greater appreciation for the visual for what, you know, we are able to communicate with, with objects, with, with images, et cetera. It's really true that you do, and not just sculptors, not just dancers or people who are more traditionally physical. We do think through our bodies and I'm sure you read about these interesting stories of people say who have extreme memory loss, but they were, you know, virtuosic musicians yeah. and yet they remember nothing but they can play, you know, put them in front of a piano and it all come. So they really are thinking th through their body, remembering that, but the, everything else is, is, is gone. Like you're, you're describing that that other essential part of them is gone, but this, the body remembers. And so yeah, the, there's, a, there's a great story about a, a musician who lost the ability to create new memories. So he lived in a, a very small time frame of, you know, 60 seconds or 150, whatever the, little buffer in his brain allowed. And as soon as he dropped out of that, he'd forget what he was talking about, he'd forget who you were, etc. until he sat in front of a piano and he could draw that moment out. So he could play entire pieces of music that were much longer than he could possibly, you know, remember any longer. And he knew his condition. He was self-aware, he understood that something was wrong. And so there's this beautiful documentary about him where he weeps at the end of, you know, his piano piece because he knows what he's lost. He feels it. And that's about the, the feeling coming through despite whatever impairments or challenges. I, I've seen that uh, documentary. And another thing that is fa so fascinating to me, and I don't quite understand how it works, but there's certain kind of, um, you know, mechanical devices that, that people allow people who have um perhaps even you know uh you you've had loss but you know even you know you know greater loss in terms of their um you know physical function and body parts but somehow it allows a translation of of movements from the brain i don't even understand how it works um or sometimes with speech say when speech is lost uh and I, I don't know how I don't know how that can can work. How we know enough yet about the mind, and um, but but those kind of explorations are really fascinating. And so you are also inspired by uh, science fiction, I believe, and science and architecture. Talk about your different inspirations and how they enliven your imagination. 
And the other interest that I have, I think the great sort of lie of being a studio artist that people outside the arts have is that it's this passion-driven event that you run to the studio. It's this great celebration of creativity. It's so much fun. You know, exactly. And in fact, you know, what it is, is it's sitting in a room by yourself with your own thoughts and no one telling you what to do. The whole point is that the activity generates itself. My experience with that is that it's very lonely. It's often difficult. It's at times painful emotionally to just sit by yourself, that it's scary, and that very few people can do it. And that's not like braggadocio. That's not like I'm able to do something, you're not. It's just that I've had at this point hundreds and hundreds of friends fall away. I've been working as an artist and in the arts since I was 19 with professionals, you know, surrounded by and watched one after another after another disappear, um, especially after art school. And that shedding, you know, even began in art school. I remember just going to the studio and I was alone until the end of the semester. And then other people would show up and do their work because there is an assignment to do. But to sit there alone by yourself without an assignment wasn't something that most people were willing to do or able to do. Um, one of the ways I do it is I think about things. I think about science, I think about science fiction, I think about architecture, I think about public space. Um, I think about the body in space. I think a lot about objects. I really care about objects. Um, I think that's a peculiarity of myself. Um, it's certainly something I've honed over time because of my profession, because of you know what I've, I've done with my time. I think that helps. I created the process of my art, you know, isn't about, it's really about like, when I left bronze casting, there were things I enjoyed about the process that I really liked. The thing that was always disappointing to me was the outcome. I always felt like all the work I did, I would, I would have this beautiful moment of inspiration and I would do all this work and I get to the end and think, that's not as cool as I thought it was going to be. Every time there's a, there's a disappointment. As much as anyone else liked it, as much as, you know, people were excited about what I was doing, I wasn't. The part that excited me was that, that first moment of inspiration and so when I came to New York, I really attacked the idea of who I was going to be in the studio, not who I was going to be in the gallery. Not the, uh, not the image I was going to produce, but the actual action I was going to take. I didn't want to work around anything I didn't like the smell of. I didn't want to work with tools that I didn't like the sound of. Um, I wanted to work with materials that tasted good in my mouth you know I like the taste of wood I like I, I'd become really I'd, I'd really come to hate the taste of bronze and I think that that moment of, of shift when I left bronze and, and came to New York served me well because what I was imagining was I was imagining the people I had left behind who I really cared for and admired all the artists I worked for my master all of his peers the you know I, I worked with just an amazing group of older artists. And so when I came to New York and my friends and I were talking about like, what do you wanna do? What's your dreams? My dream was, I wanna be an old artist. I wanna to get to be 80 or 90 years old and have been working 
the whole time as an artist, to look back on a life as an artist. And with that goal in mind, I started playing with blocks. I mean, that was really what I was doing, was I was thinking long. I really believe that lives are works of art and some people's, their life is their work of art. And sometimes we can be so perfectionist and we're trying to make the perfect art and then we neglect our life. <laughs> you know, like our life doesn't become like the artful thing. Um, but it it is so interesting that um, it's, yeah, it's the whole body of work. It's the life and how that leads into it and the sense of joy that you get from it. Because I think if you've somehow lose that along the way if it becomes a commercial endeavor or whatever it is then then one one has lost the reason one got into it in the first place and it's interesting that you mentioned loneliness I know that also you also write so tell us how that feeds into your process do you find that a little bit more like flowing and less uh I know the great, the the impressive, you know, we have, must say these are large scale sculptures. These are, you know, yeah. vertebrate like towers into the sky, public art species, uh, pieces, these are spheres. So it's understandable why they take a long time and can be frustrating. Does writing, which might be a little bit like just based on speech, come easier? Um. It's funny, you know, when I started writing, it was after I moved to New York. I had done some writing. My father was a writer um, and a very clear thinker, very clear speaker. Somebody, you know, who I admired and aspired to. Um, but it wasn't until I came to New York and began writing on the computer that I really found my voice. Um, the computer is, is so liquid and modular. You know, you can, you can knock out blocks of text and rearrange them so easily. Um, you can move back and forth between, you know, an, an idea in the mind and an idea on the page and imagery. I, I, I think of it as, as, as very simpatico with what I do as a sculptor. Um, it has the same sort of feeling. And, you know, in the same way that I don't start out with much of an idea of like an endpoint, like, you know, you mentioned the tower I made in Bruges, uh, that started out the, the only real preparatory, you know, work that we did. I, I did a, a models and other things that we scrapped. So really the only thing I showed up in Bruges with when we prepared to build the piece was an S-shaped line a long sort of elegant line. I said, this is it, this is the piece. And we built from there. Um, the sphere, the only, you know, preparatory image I had, I was able to sort of draw what it would look like. So, you know, people who were paying for it didn't feel too squirrely, but really all I knew was it was going to be eight feet across, that I was gonna hold it within that envelope which had as much to do with putting it in a truck as anything else. Um, the place that I really focus on is the beginning point. So like the sphere was uh, seven blocks in a circle um, in a radial, so, so sort of not like a, like a, like a turning wheel. Um, the tower is like two hands praying the symmetry, um, and, and everything builds off of that. And what it ends up being 
I have some inkling of, I can kind of, but I can't really see it until I see it, um, which is a great pleasure. And writing, I find that I'll start at, I'll have a start point that I'll work away from, but that I understand my ideas in my mind as I write the piece, that I'll often get to a conclusion that I hadn't expected, um, or that's even contrary to what I expected. I'll, I'll talk myself out of an idea. And it's only by articulating something, it's only by making it, it's only by joining things together and you know breaking them apart that you can actually see a thing. Um, so I, I think you know, writing is a, a lot like sculpture is, as far as process. And so you, when you're discussing that, you're, you're discussing kind of like a meditative, creating a meditative image of two hands praying and, and the sphere. It, it, it's like a, our most, you know, basic intuitive sh shape, although you add a co this complexity. So, and I know that you mentioned your, your father there, and I know he was religious. He marched with uh, Martin Luther King. And, and I was wondering how much of, how do you feel any of his, um, teachings filter into to, to your process or what did you observe or learn from him oh i think of bob every day he was wonderful um he he told me once he said uh he said you're a very wise man john powers you've chosen a career your father doesn't understand he felt he felt he, he kind of uh he found what i did and what i was able to do really wondrous and strange um strange not not strange, bizarre, but like just just outside of his realm. I was just, I had just leapt into a world he didn't know. Um, he didn't know the history, um, but we spoke a lot. You know, we had a lot of of crossover. Um, we really enjoyed talking. I, I I have always teased, and he hated it. He would squirm with us, but I said that my father really didn't know what to do with me until I could win an argument. And once I could win an argument, he was engaged. But you know, it was. When I was a kid, I feel like I just made him nervous. He didn't know what to do with the sun. Um, I think I was well into my 20s before I realized he was an intellectual. Because he didn't have any pretense. He, he, was, he was really, he, he had all kinds of vanities, but one of his vanities was he did not want to appear vain. Um, which is, you know, that's a wonderful brand of vanity. I feel like the, the man who I apprenticed with was this wonderful artist named Tom Jay. And Tom had the same vanity. He hated the idea of appearing vain. Um, the way I, 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 yeah, again, it's procedural. I think I, I, I take a lot from the way he attacked ideas. Like he had a kindness to him. Um, that I aspire to. I don't know if I'm as kind as he was. I, I, I remember showing him a, a drawing I did in high school for a punk band some friends of mine had started. And it was a, it was a Blue Baby. That was the name of the band, the Blue Baby. Um, it was like named for after like crib death or something awful. It was, an awful, it was a punk rock, they were trying to be shocking. And I remember my father saying to me that that would hurt a lot of people that that wasn't funny, that that was very hurtful, that like that was, you know, because of course he dealt with people who were in pain all the time. He was, uh, he was an ordained priest, um, but he was also a, a practicing therapist. He was a psychologist. And um, 
And he urged me not to hurt people, that I should aspire to, to be kind. Um, and I, I took that to heart. I, you know, I, I play with all kinds of sinister imagery and meanings and ideas, but I, I really don't want to hurt people. I don't want to leave behind pain. I think that that must be one of the impulses behind it all, making art. You want to make beauty, you want to bring joy, you want to share the joy that you had in the making of it. So it's it's about sharing. I, I wonder, you know, you're in New York. We've we've this is a transform. This has been a transformational and decade for all of us. And, yeah. and so one thing on our mind too is that we're thinking about the future of cities. Now, pandemic has made us reflect on that. Um, climate changes makes us uh, reflect on that. How we could design better cities. And I know it's not really your realm, but as you you know, you can't help it. You're an artist, but you're also a designer. And, and, and what are some ways that you would like to see our cities transformed as you think about the future of transport, of climate change, all the different design flaws we have in our systems? Um, it, you know, it's interesting. I've done, I, I think a lot about cities. I mean, I think essentially abstraction is an urban art going through the modern with my nephew who's a scientist and doesn't know art very much um and you know talking and he said you know we're in a room with with like early modernism and going into another room and everything was so different from one another and he said what ties any of this together what makes any of this modern and you know why isn't it not modern and i said well i said one easy way to think of it is this is all urban art this is all art by and for urban people, you know, and we're, we're at the sort of earliest moments of modernism. So I talked about like Courbet's um, funeral or not. I was like, that was a, you know, like seemingly a painting about country people, right? But it enraged Parisians because they couldn't afford to bury their dead at that time. And something that they had was they could at least look down on country people as, you know, as being out of fashion. And all of the people in the painting were dressed fashionably like Parisians. And it was an upsetting painting, um, but only from the perspective of a city dweller, you know, which is finally like, and it's a wonderful painting um, because of that. So it's, I, I do think of cities all the time. I, I think about them a great deal. Uh, I've done a number of pieces about art in public space, the way art occupies space and the way it occupies more space than it actually requires. So minimalism is great where you have like one object in a big room, you know, or one object in a big plaza, better yet. Um, seeing the Charles Ray show is great because they gave it so much it really gave him space. It's delicious. And the objects are delicious. Um, I think a great deal about our cities and politics. Um, the protests that led into, you know, into COVID were really interesting at how successful they were in the United States. Um, the Black Lives matters movement was just a phenomenal success if not 
if not achieving everything it needs to achieve, it achieved so much. And I think it's easy, you know, for, for young people and even old people to, to feel like discouraged when you want something to happen and not as much happens as you want. And, and what you lose is, is the sense of like, well, you know, we didn't get what we, you know, what we wanted. We really wanted a lot. We really need a lot, but we did get a lot. And gains of those kinds are important to look at because that's how you get the rest is you look at how those gains were made and you, you know, you gain more. I remember like watching the kids down in um, Occupy Wall Street. That was another fantastic moment of how it's so difficult to protest in New York. I don't know. I mean, Paris, you guys have a tradition of protest that's absolutely fantastic. You know, and when they talk about the housing of of, of um, Paris and the fact that it was supposed to bring tanks in or something, what it really misses is like how well the Parisians use those, those great boulevards for protests. You guys fill the streets and you know you move around in ways that are uncontrollable still, even after house unification, in fact, probably more so. Um, in New York, the cops had gotten very good at penning in crowds, controlling them, uh, and crowds began to really outsmart the cops. There was a, there was a great moment um, and feeling of, of optimism for me. So I have a certain amount of optimism coming out of COVID um, for mass movement, for mass protest. It's hard to be you know, extremely optimistic at this moment. I think you know, we're all watching what's happening in Ukraine and wishing there were greater protests all over the place. Um, but it is nice to see how much backlash there is against the Russians and what they're doing. Yes, and uh, you, you speak about uh, you know collective movements, and, and I think that particularly among young people, there's a lot of openness to to rethink our systems, and uh, you know maybe you know capitalism in its current form isn't serving us as best as it could be, as we think about. Uh, I'm sorry, because we have an environmental podcast, so it's like half and half yeah. of what we do um, about the enormous amount of um, resources that we waste. And these are all design issues, you know, or whether we can live more collectively, um, you know, in terms of like architectural solutions, this individualistic way of thinking is not going to be manageable so much going into the future. So, you know, what are your dreams regarding that as, as you reflect upon it? Uh, applying your artist brains to some of our design problems. Yeah, I'm very optimistic about young people. I really am. I, I just think like, whenever I'm talking to young people, whenever I'm watching what they're doing, um, I, I feel like I'm watching people who are brighter than I ever was, who are, you know, ambitious and interested, excited. Um, Something again about protest and mass protest is that it is in fact like mass movement is in fact when you get human bodies together and they move together. That that is a really empowering moment, and I think a lot of young people have felt it, which is exciting because those moments build into other moments. When I was Young, when I was in my teens, there was no mass movements happening. They had been very 
effectively squashed by redesigning cities in ways that made them harm. American cities, large parks, and so on were divided after the protests of the 60s and the 70s systematically. Um, and it just made it hard to move around in big groups. Watching the protests, and you know, I'm not, I'm not a bottle thrower. I'm not ready to take a punch from a cop or get trampled by a horse. I'm, I'm old and whatever. Um, but I do watch, and I, I, I'll bring my body in. If there's a march, I'll go and I'll, I'll join in. Um, but the part that I hope for is that feeling of power igniting in young people. Um, And, and what, they, what they need from us is, is the space to do it, is the room to do it, is the permission, is you know, the, the encouragement. And, and one thing that we reflect a lot about on um, with this project is education. And I know it's something that you've reflected on, you've spoken about uh, you know, your early life in school and maybe you know, reading was something that was, at first came difficult, but when you, you know, came to art, that was something you really understood. Um, I feel like we should be teaching people and that the ways that they have their aptitudes and they can learn to the best of their ability um, and show us different, there's, we have to escape these modules that are so strict. So, you know, what are your reflections on education and how we might improve our educational models? Well, I mean, you know, you're in, you're in Europe and I'm in America. Um, the, 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 the fight we're fighting here is, you know, they're, they're banning books and they, you know, really are, ideological spread between Europe and America. And I, I used to spend a lot of time there. Um, and the way I would, I would articulate to Europeans, the difference between Europeans and Americans is I would always say, you cannot be a judge in America if you were ever a communist. Never mind if you're a communist currently. But that will never happen. You can never become a judge. That is, that is disqualifying. That we are so much further to the right than you are. And what's interesting about that, that example is that Europeans are caught off guard by it. They, they say, what do you mean? And Americans are caught off guard by it. Americans are like, communists can become judges in Europe? Like they can't even picture a world that includes communism in an ideological spectrum. Um, and we've swung so far to the right. I mean, it's just, it's gotten terrifying here. So education, you know, talking about modules and talking about ways of teaching, like, I mean, wow, I just wanna see kids able to get public education. Um, to have affordable education. You know, uh, NYU is $90,000 a year. It's the single most, uh, what is it? It's, the single, like, it's, it's graduating like the most graduates, like unable to ever pay off their education. Something absurd. It's also, I think, the single largest landowner in, in Manhattan, New York City. Um, it's a non-for-profit. They have just a huge real estate empire. It's a, it's a thing unto itself. But it's a, it's a creature of America. It's like the most American creature ever, maybe. Um, 
I think yes. the Catholic Church is the second biggest. But. Yes, they used to be the big landowners, or maybe still are. Um, it's true. I, I don't feel that we should be putting our young people into debt. And you yourself would have benefited from uh, an apprenticeship. Like th there's different ways to educate ourselves or vocationally. Um, we do a kind of apprenticeship, I suppose. It's like one-on-one -on -one mentorship. So it's, a, it's different than the big classroom experience. And I think that um, with COVID, it's actually threatened some university models. They have to rethink because people are learning remotely and they thought, well, I can sort of do this yeah. on the internet. Um, but it's, uh, it's, they, they needed that because it's important to make that accessible to, to all, which we do benefit from generally in Europe. Um, you know, so as you think about the future and the importance of the arts and the kind of world we're leaving for the next generation, uh, what were some life lessons and teachers that were important to you? And what would you like young people to know, preserve and remember? Um, so cutting off your thumb sucks, right? We can all agree, like being an artist and cutting off your thumb is a double tragedy. You know, when I said, I think with my hands, I was appealing to a room full of surgeons to please save my thumb. They weren't able to, they tried. Spent about eight hours trying. What's been interesting is that my life as an artist hasn't made this harder for me. It's made it easier that you know when i talk about it, it's hard to be in the studio it's it's a difficult and often painful place it's not always it's not always difficult i can tell when i'm in good shape like in my heart and in my mind when i'm in the studio because i sit here quietly i don't have music on i'm not watching you know the news i'm not listening to books whatever i'm just listening to my thoughts and i'm just doing whatever i'm doing and that's the space I was in when I got hurt. I was in this great sort of fecund, fecund, loamy, rich, you know, soil. I was digging, I was thinking, I was excited. I was working on a project I'm, I'm really in love with, on and on and on. I carried that space into my recovery and I was able to maintain it and to maintain my emotional equilibrium equilibrium, um, which was very important. If you can imagine, like, had I gone into a depression or, you know, otherwise suffered trauma, it would have been, it would have been very hard, very hard for the people around me, very hard for me. Um, I feel really lucky that in fact, what I was able to do was to apply the way I think as an artist. Um, it was a little disturbing for my friends and my wife at first because I was very quiet. I wasn't doing anything. You know, when I was in the hospital, I didn't watch TV. I never turned on the TV. I just sat and looked out the window. When I came home, I just sat and like was in my head. And finally, you know, she said like, I need you to speak to me. I need to know what's in your head. I was scaring her. And so I did, I started talking and telling her about, you know, whatever I was thinking about. Just started un un unloading it for her um, and to my friends and to you. You know, I started, I opened up online. I found that, you know, like that people wanted to know I was okay and wanted to know 
what I was thinking. And in fact, what I found myself thinking was like the same sort of things I think when I'm at the table working, which is I found myself really interested in the stuff I was experiencing and thinking and wanting to articulate it. The life of the artist is difficult. I think it's a wonderful life. Uh, if you can make it for yourself, I think that it's a good model for being. Um, certainly in a world where, you know, I, I, I like to joke that uh, artists are, are poor people that rich people like. Um, and when Occupy Wall Street came, there was a movement to break away and uh, do Occupy Museum and Occupy this and that for artists to, uh, to gain things for artists, subsidies or special apartments or, you know. And I argued very hard that we shouldn't peel away any energy from Occupy Wall Street, that we should go and not stand at the vanguard, not be the avant-garde. We should stand at the rear. We should stand behind and let the kids lead, but we should add our bodies to their movement. Because in fact, what they were fighting for was for poor people. And that if poor people are doing well, artists are doing well. Um, and I, I believe that really deeply. I, I, I don't find in my heart any desire to fight for artists. I, I really feel like if we fight for poor people, artists are gonna be great. That's true. We have to assert what we value the most. And I guess artists, that's maybe one of our roles is just to be that echo or reinforcement of just what is uh, society in general. Um, it really sounds like, I, I love to hear that you've taken what could be, you know, the trauma of, um, you know, losing part of your hand to, um, into a kind of transformational experience. I always like this expression of the, the uncarved block, you know, this kind of, this state that's maybe like, uh, you know, our natural state before all the things in life that happen. So it seems like you, in a way to use that building block of your uh, sculpture that you return to an uncarved block where you can like a rebirth. Beginner's mind. Yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I it, it, I, have, I, I think a lot about the mind as an organ and that it has been very kind to me. I can't claim any, you know, I can't claim it as mine as if something I've done. I just feel like it's been very gentle with me and very kind with me at this time when, you know, something I've spoken to a lot of people with hand injuries because of this. A lot of people reached out, et cetera. Um, and it's an, it's an extremely, it's a particularly shaming and um, painful injury. Uh, people feel, it, it really, it can, un, it can unmoor people. Even just losing the tip of a finger can be devastating, much less losing your grasp or, you know, losing a digit. Um, and I, I feel huge sympathy and I understand how that can be. Um, because again, you have to look at it all day. You have to think about it and never, you can't put it away. You can, I mean, people, you know, I, I was talking to a technician who fit this for me. And he was telling me about another one of his clients who has been unable to look at his hand since his injury. He will not look at it. 
which is too bad for him because that's how you, that's actually how you heal. Um, like, like not even just like emotionally, I damage the nerves and as the nerves come back, they come back disordered. Um, I feel things very different on this hand than I feel on this hand. It's very strange things, especially early on, I would get all these strange signals. And the way you regain your feeling is you look at the hand while you touch it with different things. You train it, but you have to look at it too. It requires, it doesn't like, you can't, like touching it with different things is strange, like touching it with sandpaper um, was a very strange thing for me because I'm used to sanding. And if you can imagine when we touch sandpaper, we touch it in two ways. One is our, our skin touching it and the feel of it in our hands so we know what grit. So like I immediately was like, oh, that's a 60 grit sandpaper you're giving me to touch my hand with it. But the other way we touch sandpaper is when we sand something, we're feeling the, the movement of removing material, right? So we're, we're, our, our, we can feel that in our hands. When I touched my hand, I was sanding off material. I wasn't touching sandpaper. Do you know what I mean? Like the, that's how disorganized the nerves were, that I felt like I was sanding wood, not that I was touching skin. It had all been reversed. Um, but looking at it is what helps. Again, the visual stuff has been really interesting. Yeah, that's interesting. With these five senses, we don't realize how much they are interdependent, and we just we just don't realize. I, we don't know how the mind really works. I do want to mention your project Paw in closing because the, this is an it's a more social aspect to your art that maybe maybe cures some of that loneliness that you felt being. <laughs> yeah. yeah, I mean it was it was uh, it was definitely a, I had a sense that. I wanted to reach out to people right away. Um, when I had the phantom limb, um, the, the way I experienced it was the hand was in these very strange, stiff positions off to my side. And I, I had a nerve block, so I couldn't feel the arm and it was covered because they wanted to keep it warm. So I couldn't see it. And every time I thought of it, it would be in a, a slightly different position and it would be grasping really hard. But more interestingly, it would be holding different things. And it was really entertaining. I was in the hospital for six days and I had this phantom limb and, and it held this whole variety of objects. And I won't walk you through the whole thing, but it, it left me with the sense that, um, you know, then I knew I was gonna have a missing ring finger, even if I, they had saved my thumb. And so I began to think about like how great it would be to have like a beautiful, like a, 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 a reliquary for a saint, you know, like a silver finger, like you would put saint's bones in as a, as a ring finger. Um, something nice to wear to a, like my niece is getting married this June. I, I would love to have like a nice fancy finger for her wedding. Um, so I began to think about those things and I immediately thought of all the artists I know and how like, you know, these are people who, um, you know, some are friends whose work I admire, but more often it's just people whose work you admire and you think, God, I'd love to have that guy in my life somehow or that woman in my life somehow. And so I began to think like, wow, you know, how would, how would they make a thumb? How would they make a ring finger? Uh, so I, I put it up as an open call um, because I wanted to have something to point people to. And I actually haven't been super aggressive about pointing my, like, my like particular artist to it yet. 
because I'm still working on a system to attach it to the hand. I'd like for people, instead of getting a raw hand, to get like attachment systems that they could go with. So like right now, like I could ask people to make thumb tips for me, which I'm gonna begin to work on. Um, I like this thumb tip, it's good for certain things, but it's not good for like, like it's not as good for my work as I would like. It's not good for picking up small objects and manipulating them. Um, it's skeuomorphic design, which is, um, it's made to look like the thing it's replacing. So it's made to look like a thumb, but it, it to work like a tool, like the tool I need, it can't look like a thumb. That's bad design for me. Um, skeuomorphic is uh, the term used when the trash in your computer looks like a little trash can. It's very helpful. We all know to put it there and it disappears. You know, we can empty the trash. We all understand that. But it can get in the way. The shape of this is, is shaped like a thumb, but it makes manipulating small things difficult. Um, versus if it was like a cone, maybe with a flat end, I would be able to, to work it much easier. Um, so I've begun to think about replacing this and hacking this. But, and, and I don't know, I, it, this isn't very module. And this isn't very module beyond that, but something like this that people could add to would be great. Um, so I think, I think over time, uh, I'll begin to have a collection of, of hands from my friends, which I'm looking forward to. Yes, well, you really made me reflect too, us reflect on, you know, just what are the wonders of the human body and design and, uh, you know, just what we, how we can think and how we can create through it um, and where the origins of our ideas and creativity. So thank you, John Powers, for creating shapes and spaces that make us think about the world and our place in it and for helping us remember what is most important in life. Thank you for adding your voice to the creative process. Thanks so much for having me. The Creative Process Podcast is supported by the Jan Michalski Foundation. This interview was conducted by Mia Funk with the participation of collaborating universities and students. Digital Media Coordinator is Phoebe Browse. Wintertime was composed by Nicholas Anadolis and performed by the Athenian Trio.